I don't know about you, but admitting that you're wrong is probably one of the hardest things to do. Um, this is not really something that is uh, a claim that Christians can only say. In fact, this is a reality that uh, really anybody who walks and breathes and lives can say that admitting that you're wrong is just a hard thing. And, and, and really, for those of us who uh, desire day after day to be more and more like Jesus, to be submitted to Jesus as master and savior of our lives, um, this is something especially uh, that can seem really, really hard. And uh, I, think, I think the reason why is that, um, well, you might even know this, even, even non-religious psychologists and sociologists agree that admitting I'm wrong is difficult, isn't it? I mean, how many of you love to admit that you're wrong? Nobody. Okay, one. I was wrong, and that was hard. But even like non-religious psychologists and sociologists agree that for most people, <laughs> saying I'm wrong is difficult. Why is that? Because uh, of something that they call cognitive dissonance. Now, uh, where am I going with this? Well, just hold on for a second. One psychologist was quoted saying in a New York Times article entitled, um, the article was entitled, Why It's So Hard to Admit You're Wrong. Uh, this is what they wrote. Cognitive dissonance is what we feel when the self-concept, I'm smart, I'm kind, I'm convinced this belief is true, is threatened by evidence that we did something that wasn't smart, that we did something that hurt another person that the belief we have isn't true. I say all that because today we're going to be talking about what it means to lean into repentance. And just definitely not a subject that you would uh, like wake up in the morning and go, I am looking forward to repentance this morning. <laughs> it's, it's not what you look forward to. And, and, and those of you who know me, uh, if you're an Enneagram, I'm the Enneagram 7 guy. And so I'm definitely not about like leaning into like pensive thought that brings you into despair and lament. I'm like, let's get to the happy part. But every once in a while, in fact, as we talk through our passage today, I, I, I am learning Okay? I am learning that it is actually a very healthy thing. And God does a great thing inside of our lives when we learn to lean in to repentance. And so I just want to give you a couple heads up or maybe a couple encouragements as we, before we even jump into here, I, I, I want to encourage you first off not to write off anything that we're going to be talking about uh, because it's maybe uncomfortable or because you, don't, you feel like it doesn't really apply to you. I, I, really, I really hope you would listen really well and that you wouldn't just write it off. Second thing is, uh, whether you believe everything you've heard about Jesus in the Bible, today is so important because what we are talking about has the power to heal our hearts and bring peace to our souls. To heal your heart bring peace to your soul. 
And if you're someone who considers yourself a Christian, then what we're going to be talking about today is a non-negotiable in the life. It's a non-negotiable discipline in the life of every person who was, is, and will be a follower of Jesus. So, before we jump into the message part, um, <clears throat> you know, I, I do want to say good morning. Good morning. How you doing? Welcome. Welcome, as, uh, as Megan said, welcome to Edinburgh Elementary. And if we've never met, uh, by the way, I, I know I just jumped in and like went right into the deep end, um, but that, that video just warranted, uh, I thought that, that, that song, Brokenness Aside, I really wanted to set the mood for what we're going to be experiencing today and what I hope you'll join me in experiencing today. But uh, I, I do want to say, if you've never met, my name is Phil, and I get the wonderful opportunity to be the pastor of this group of people who call themselves Clarity Church. And uh, before we start, what I want you to do is I want to invite you to go ahead and open up whatever copy of the scriptures that you have most readily available to you, whether it's an app on your phone, uh, maybe you're old school, you got a paper Bible, or if you're in need of one, uh, you can find a Bible usually in the back of one of the chairs near you, so you can find a paper Bible next to you. And uh, our main passage of scripture today comes from Psalm 51, Psalm 51. So go ahead and don't be ashamed. You can use the table of contents. That's what it's there for. Um, and so Psalm 51, that's where we're going to be. And if, uh, if, you're today, if today is the first time with us, is your first time with us, or maybe it's your first time in a while, <clears throat> last week we began this new series entitled The Heart Matters. And while this series isn't an exact representation of the observation of the season known as Lent, um, as more liturgical churches would observe it, I get that. Some of you grew up in a Catholic or maybe a Lutheran background, and you're like, this is not really Lent. And I would go, congratulations. Way to go, Sherlock. Uh, but this is, what we're doing is this series is, 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 is hopefully, um, what we're trying to do is in the same spirit, we want to take a journey together that forces us to take inventory of our lives. And so the goal, as I said last week, is to take several weeks, take really the next several weeks leading up to Easter to set some time aside to, one, take a solemn look at our sin. Like that's, that's first of all, that, that's crazy, but that's what we want to do. And then our need for repentance and so this is really what we're going to be diving into today. But then even as we continue in the next several weeks, what we want to do is we want to take a solemn look at the price that was paid for our redemption through the death of Jesus. And so while this series may feel, you know, may feel like overly serious, uh, you know, asking you to contemplate and come to grips with the things that this maybe modern culture of uh, positive affirmation would say is really unhealthy towards a person who is trying to establish self-health or self-care, what we must remember is that Jesus taught that the kingdom of heaven belongs to those who are poor in spirit. Remember, Jesus said this, blessed are the, what? Poor. In other translations, it says happy are. And why? For the kingdom of heaven is theirs. And we could spend, and we have as a church, spent many weeks and met a lot of time just understanding what this idea of being poor in spirit means. And I don't have time to rehash this, this, this wonderful, what they call the beatitude of this teaching of Jesus. 
But if I was to give a very simple explanation of what this is, in my own words, this is how I would define it. To be poor in spirit is to have the courage to confess our sins. It's the courage. There's nothing weak about being poor in spirit. In fact, I think it takes a lot of courage. And, it, and it's also the bravery to believe that without God, we are without hope. I actually think it's easier to believe that I got this. <laughs> I think it takes someone who's really, really brave to go, yeah, I don't got this. I, I can't do this on my own. And so to be poor in spirit is to have the courage to confess our sins and the bravery to believe that without God we are without hope. And we are, in fact, in desperate need of him. Question I would want to ask, is anyone here today poor in spirit? Because the kingdom of God is yours. And if it isn't, We'll have an opportunity today to experience what it means to be poor in spirit. Now, last week I talked about the importance of humility, if you were here. Um, today I want us to talk about one of the main things that humility before God requires, which is, as I said before, leaning into repentance. Now, <clears throat> we're going to be in Psalm 51. Are you there? Are you there? Uh, before we get there, uh, here's a little backstory. Just in case you don't know the story. Uh, in 2 Samuel chapter 11, verses 12, you can write that down. You should read it on your own. It, in fact, is actually a crazy, crazy story in the life of a man named David. And if you don't know who David is, David is the David and Goliath guy, you know. Right? So I don't know if that's how it actually went, but that's my best representation of it. But so David is the David and Goliath guy. He was the David and Goliath guy. And, and what we do in 2 Samuel here, chapters 11 and 12, we find that he's now king. In fact, he has just recently, it's been about maybe 20 years, he has established his kingship over all of Israel. And so he's the man. Everyone's fearful of him. People are singing like, you know, uh, you know, you know, Saul's killed thousands, David's killed ten thousands, and so he's this—he's like—he's the man. He's on top. He's—he's—he's he's, he's got it. And at the height of his power, we find David deciding—and this is crazy—to stay home instead of leading his armies into battle. As one commentator put it, just—I—I I, I don't want to always assume like everyone gets the the weight of that, and so sometimes it's really helpful to maybe bring some scholastic information on that. And here's what one commentator put. The narrator, the writer of 2 Samuel, leaves the impression that every able-bodied man in Israel goes to war, everyone that is except the king himself. Indeed, leading his troops into battle was expected to be the major external activity of an ancient Near Easter ruler. It's supposed to be Eastern, not Easter. Anyways, he is the Easter ruler, huh? <laughs> you see what I did there? <laughs> okay, anyways. Um, although therefore reprehensible in itself, David's conduct, conduct on this occasion opens the way for royal behavior that is more despicable still. And so what is that despicable behavior? What is that despicable behavior we find? Well, to make a long story short, David abuses his power as king to satisfy his desire for adultery. And he gets another man's wife by the name of Bathsheba 
pregnant. You don't have to be someone who has your moral compass guided by the scriptures to know that's wrong. (laughs) That's despicable. To make matters worse, like if that was it, we would most, most of us here would go like, okay, that was pretty bad. But to make matters worse, David engages in a cover-up scandal so atrocious that it would even make the most godless person cry, foul! In the end, he has Bathsheba's husband killed so it would look like David was a benevolent king who took in a widow rather than an adulterous murderer that he was. This is crazy stuff. You can't, write, you can't make this up. And unfortunately for David, what he attempted to do in secret, God revealed to a man by the name of Nathan. And the reason why Nathan is so important is because Nathan was a prophet of God, but he was also a, a trusted advisor to David. So he already was a person who, whom David actually listened to. And so what God did is he sent Nathan to David to confront him of his sin. And we read in Psalm 51, a song of David in response to the confrontation of the sin. Martin Luther referred to Psalm 51 as this psalm of repentance. Another Bible scholar and commentator writes that the lament form of the psalm suitably fits the spirit of contrition and prayer for restoration Gone are the questions. Gone are the questions. What do you mean by that? Well, all through the Psalms leading up to this, you see the psalmist saying like, where are you, God? How are you? Like, where is your hand? Will you not save me? Are you? And so there's all these questions in the lament. But here is a turning point in the lament because there are no more questions. Gone are the questions. And what remains is a soul deeply aware of sin, of having offended God, of its desperate need of God's grace. So, that brings us to our text today. Excuse me for a Psalm 51, verse 1. Let's just walk through our text today, and then what I hope to do is um, give us some practical application for how uh, this will help us Right here, right now, uh, know Jesus more clearly and become more like Jesus. And so this is what it reads. David's psalm, he says, Be gracious to me, God, according to your faithful love, according to your abundant compassion, blot out my rebellion. Let's stop right there. Last week we said that one of our main points from Isaiah 6, where we were in last week, is that if I want to embrace humility, I have to see clearly that God is great and I am not. And we talked about that last week, the whole, the woe is me. And so I'm not going to reteach that. But what we have here, David, David, right in the beginning of this psalm, you can call it a prayer, what does he do? David acknowledges how great God is. He says, Be gracious to me, God, according to your faithful love, according to your abundant compassion. And he recognizes that God is gracious, that he's compassionate, and that his love never fails, proclaiming that the Lord, uh, really, 
is who he said he was. In fact, most God-fearing Jews knew uh, this is the main character of God as displayed to Moses at the burning bush. And some of you remember the story of Moses. And, and when Moses is like, who are you? What's, it, what's up with you? And, and then the Lord says, it comes out of him in Exodus 34, and he says what? I am the Lord, am one, right? And he says, I am slow to anger. And he says, I'm, you know, compassionate, mercy, you know, and full of everlasting uh, unfailing, you know, everlasting faithfulness. And so what he does is he, he proclaims already what we know about who God is and what he's done. And then he says this, completely wash away my guilt and cleanse me from my sin. For I'm conscious of my rebellion and my sin is always before me. Against you, you alone, I have sinned and have done this evil in your sight. So you are right when you pass sentence. You are blameless when you judge. Indeed, I was guilty when I was born. I was sinful when my mother conceived me. Uh, it's pretty self-explanatory. David is making a blatant admission of his sin. He does not try to explain it away. He does not try to cushion the blow of the severity with excuses. He says, I know what I did. I recognize what I did was against your standards. It's not just a mistake. What I did was a sin. What I did was evil. In fact, God, I've been a sinner since birth. David just doesn't stop there. Look what he says next in verse 6. Surely you desire integrity in the inner self, and you teach me wisdom deep within. Purify me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Turn your face away from my sins and blot out all my guilt. God, create in me a clean heart and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore the joy of your salvation to me. Sustain me by giving me a willing spirit. So, quick recap. David acknowledges how great God is and all that he has done. And then he opens up to God about his sin with transparency and humility. And then after doing this, he recognizes that God is the solution to his sinful heart. And he asks for forgiveness. Look what he says there. He goes, purify me, cleanse me, create in me. And he just doesn't stop at forgiveness, right? He wants to be changed. He asked for a clean heart. And he asked that God would renew his spirit. And most importantly, he asked for God's presence to remain with him. Because he understood what Jesus taught himself when he said this, on that day, many will say, Lord, Lord, did we prophet, didn't we prophesy in your name, drive out demons in your name, and do many miracles in your names? Wasn't I an awesome worship leader? Didn't I run the soundboard really great? Wasn't I a great teacher in kids' ministry? Didn't I do really good? Didn't I do this? Didn't I, didn't I feed the poor? Didn't I go down and, and pack meals? Didn't I, didn't I, didn't I, didn't I, didn't I, didn't I, in your name? And then I will announce to them, I never what? knew you. Depart from me, 
you lawbreakers. In other words, David knew what Jesus was really trying to teach, which is that you could do all the right things. You can actually have what is seen by man's eyes, fruitful ministry, and you can still be guilty of being a lawbreaker. Did you know that? Did you know that? Why? Because if you do not have a relationship with God, all the good that you do, while it makes an impact in the temporal, has no impact in the eternal. And so, I'm not saying that we shouldn't do good things. I'm just saying that we need to be the kind of people who in our lament, in our sin, remember that the most important thing is not behavior change, but dependency on God. Does that make sense? Let's look at how David finishes this song of repentance, and then let's get to how I hope we can engage in this text practically and tangibly in this morning before we leave. Psalm 51, Then I will teach the rebellious your ways, and sinners will return to you. Oh, I can't, you can't miss this. I'll, I'll, in a second, I'll, I'll tell you why this is so important, but let me read that again. After the repentance, after the asking for God to cleanse him, to change his heart, then David says, when this has all happened, I will be able to be the kind of person who, like you have done me, teach the rebellious your ways and help the sinner come back to you. Save me from the guilt of bloodshed, God, God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. Some of you don't like to sing. I'm not saying it's because you're not a repentant person, but, you know, maybe. You know, it says like the repentant person. I'm just teasing. I'm just messing with you. You do not want a sacrifice or I would give it. You are not pleased with the burnt offering. The sacrifice pleasing to God is a what? Broken spirit. You will not despise a broken and humble heart. You will not despise a broken and humble heart. In your good pleasure, cause Zion to prosper. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in righteous sacrifices. Then you will delight in righteous sacrifices whole burnt offerings, and then bulls will be offered on your altar. You've heard me say this before, and uh, I'll say it again just because it's a reminder of what really David is speaking of here. I I pause on verse 13 because I don't want us to miss this. It's not a main point, but it definitely is a point to think about, especially as we think about the, the effect and the importance of a life and a discipline of repentance. Why is that so important? Well, Remember, you've heard me say this before. God uses a transformed what? 
people to transform what? The world. It takes a transformed people in order for God to transform the world. That's how God does it, okay? Could God, by his own power, come down and just go, poof, be changed, poof, be changed, poof. Can he do that? Of course he can. But what has God chosen to do? He's chosen to use transformed people, his church, to transform the world. David communicates this idea that God will use him to help others who have been guilty of breaking God's law to find their way to God. And I wonder, I wonder if those of us who struggle to feel like God is using us to lead others into a restored relationship with God, I wonder if the barriers for that might be because we ourselves have not found ourselves leaning into repentance in such a way that we could point other people to Jesus. Maybe our idea of spirituality and religion is based on this works, is based on even this idea of you know, going to church, exercising the disciplines, having knowledge of scripture, you know, being a person who can control their tongue and look moral. And so then when we try to help people who maybe are not believers in Jesus, we say to ourselves like, oh my goodness, how am I going to help this person look like me? I mean, Jesus. And I don't know if you know, I know Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ, but I, I don't know about you. I'm no Paul. <laughs> and at the end of the day, we want people to follow Jesus, right? And you can't take people where you've never been. And if restoration and the healing of our hearts and our souls comes from a repentant heart towards Jesus, I wonder if we are not a transformed people transforming the world because not, there are not many of us who have said, God, I'm so sorry. Forgive me. There is no excuse. I've been hiding this secret sin. I've been trying to make everyone think I've got it all together, but inside I know there's a sin and I don't want to even say it because I, I don't like the way it makes me feel, but... I want your will to be done, so God, forgive me, heal me, cleanse me, create a new heart in me, and because of the guilt and the shame, I'm going to need you to renew a right spirit within me. Return to me the joy of your salvation. I wonder if the church isn't seeing more people find and follow Jesus, not because our programs don't look good enough or because our lights aren't hanging at the right angle or the band doesn't have the right volume that makes everybody happy. I wonder if it's because the church has not yet come to grips that without God, we are nothing. I don't know about you, but I want to be a part of a church that has well practiced this idea of leaning into repentance. David also recognizes that at the end of the day, what God really wants from us is a broken and humble heart before God. 
which is why he says sacrifices, the things that <laughs> along the way we have told ourselves this is what brings you honor and praise. But what actually really brings you honor and praise is not the things we do necessarily as much as who we are. And so, God, you don't want a pageantry of religion. You want a broken and a humble heart. So, That's a lot of seriousness even for me to handle. <laughs> what I want to do today is create some space for us to confess Jesus Christ as Lord, to do what we just read, to lean into repentance. And in just a few moments, I'm going to ask our production team to play some music that we've prepared ahead of time very quietly and what I want us to do is to take some time to be honest about our sin. Don't worry. There's not going to be a mic. We're not passing it around. I'm not telling you to come tell a person your deepest, darkest sin. What, what I want you to do today, and, and li- li- listen, this is so important. I don't want anyone to miss what this opportunity can mean just because it may feel a little awkward. Okay? I don't want us just to read about repentance today. I want us to actually take time for repentance. If you remember, James, the brother of Jesus, said this, but don't just listen to God's word. You must what? Do what it says. Otherwise, you're only fooling yourselves. For if you listen to the word and don't obey, it's like glancing at your face in a mirror. You see yourself, you walk away and forget what you look like. But if you look carefully into the perfect law that sets you free, and if you do what it says and don't forget what you heard, then God will bless you for doing it. I want God to bless you this morning. That's what I want him to do. So what I want us to do is to use Psalm 51 as a guideline. Now, I'm not saying that this is the only way for repentance. Uh, this is, you know, this is, but this is definitely a, a way we can turn from our sin and turn to God, as, as we've said many times, repentance is simply a phrase that means turning your direction, turning from living your life your way and turning to living your life to God, turning from you're the God of your life to God is the God of your life. And actually, here's a, a very interesting thing I learned in my study this week. Uh, in, in the Aramaic uh, and in the Jewish tradition, the idea of repentance is actually this idea called teshuva, which is this idea of returning back. And it actually, it doesn't mean just turning, it means going back home. So it's not just turning away from your sin to this new thing that's like, oh, goodness gracious, this is so hard. It's so hard to be holy. It's so hard to be in God's presence. It's so hard to live according to his law. No, 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 no. Actually, you don't understand. It's turning from your way and you're going back home to how your life should be and how God has designed you. I just love that picture. It's turning back home. And so what we're going to do we're going to take a couple minutes, and first we're going to start by acknowledging how great God is and all that he has done. I, and, and I'll have this up here on the screen, and you just look at it. I just want you to go, just take time. Just acknowledge, this is aligning your heart with the reality of the attributes of God. 
and the way God has demonstrated his goodness and his mercy to you in the past. This is saying things like, okay, God, I know you are great. God, I know you are sovereign. And in the past, you have been, and then you start confessing, God, you are great. You, you saved me from my sin. You delivered me. Or maybe you healed me. You healed. Uh, you did this in my life. And so this is, this is where we start. We start with ex- confessing the greatness of God. And then second, I'll ask you, like David did, to admit your need for God by admitting that you're a sinner and confessing your sin to God. Don't rush this. You can't turn away from what you're not aware of. Don't try to hide your sin like David did. Take some time. Confess that sin. And once you confess the sin in your life, then ask for forgiveness. Ask for a clean heart. Ask for a renewed spirit. And then after you've done that, I hope you just take time to just worship God. In the same spirit that you started by acknowledging the greatness of God, you'll end by thanking God for being exactly who you know him to be. Worshiping God in thankfulness for his grace and in advance for the work he is doing in and through you to make you live life more like Jesus. So, go ahead, start the music, and I'll keep time. All right, so you don't have to worry like, oh, what time is it? What time is it? Okay, so fight the urge to go like, how long has it been? Okay, if you're going to look, if anything, look up here and just walk through. I'm not going to say anything else. When I say go, we're just going to pray. We're going to talk to our Heavenly Father. And it will seem like an eternity, but it'll be just a few minutes, okay? And so... Let's just pause and lean into repentance.
Thanks for doing that with me. Um, I want to encourage you to go from here and into this next week. And take just a few minutes. For some of you, that felt like an eternity. For some of you, you probably could have used a few more minutes. For some of you, that has been the longest that you've paused to talk to your Heavenly Father in a while outside of praying for your food or tucking your kid into bed. What I hope is that over the next several weeks and even into this week, especially immediately, is that we would take some time and do what we did just in these last few minutes. Or at a minimum, maybe, maybe you, you'll lose the notes. Maybe you forget the, what does it say? Ask this and then confess. At a minimum, open up <laughs> to Psalm 51 and make David's prayer your prayer. Created me. Cast not your Holy Spirit from me. Do not remove your presence from me. Our prayer is that we would lead into repentance. In our repentance, we would be with Jesus. And then we would become like Jesus. And then we would live.